We've been working on this series, this Back to the Basic series, and we kind of looked at four things, um, and we're, we're settling on the last of those four things. It comes from, let's see, you know, back to the basics of a growing church, how the church, when it was first founded, what were the things they did that helped them grow in their discipleship and growing and grace and truth together? Um, it's kind of our theme. We looked at this verse from Acts chapter 2, which says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And we've been kind of focusing the last couple of weeks on the idea of the prayers and, and kind of giving um, the the idea of uh, focusing on that one thing, the, the prayers there. And uh, so Randy gave us some good tips last week about prayer. And so again, today we're going to be looking at this idea of prayer. I titled the sermon called Iffy Prayer. It comes from uh, this verse, I think it's from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's kind of our jumping off verse today as we continue to think about prayer. When we look at our world today, we see that, you know, it's just kind of a mess. <laughs> it seems like a big giant mess. The the deterioration from sin that began in the Garden of Eden um, has become terribly, terribly obvious at every point. Um, and when we see news, it's bad news, bad news, extra, extra bad news um, that we seem to hear all the time. And sadly, I'm afraid we often feel like there's nothing we can do about it. We feel helpless, hopeless, lost, pessimistic, and, and, and things are just going worse and we expect them to get worse tomorrow. And, uh, and that's just kind of where we live. But what I want to share with you today is there is something we can do about it. There's something dramatic we can do about it. Um, from based on this verse, it tells us right away that one thing we can do about the bad news that's in this world, about, about when we see things not going the way they should be, is that we can pray. And that's no little thing. We have the, the ability to pray about these things. And, and we're given this idea. Now, a little context about this scripture is this was um, at the end of where uh, Solomon had dedicated the, the temple. They had built the temple. He prayed this long prayer of dedication to the temple. And God responds. In, in verse 13, this is what God says to Solomon. He goes, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land and send pestilence along my among my people, then if my people who are called by my name, that verse comes in. So when things in the land are bad, when when God's favor is not being seen, when when things are getting worse and worse and worse, it's a call for the people of God to pray for their land. So we can pray. As bad as it is, we can pray. And, and so I want to share a couple of what I think are profound truths today, and then kind of flesh them out a little bit. And the first one of those profound truths is this. God's people are partly responsible for the good of the land. God's people, that's us, we are partly responsible for the good of the land. That verse says, if my people who are called by my name will pray, will humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear. It's, a, it's an if-then statement. 
In the New Testament, Jesus in the great Sermon on the Mount teaches us this further. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, it says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that you may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. <coughs> this teaching is that we're supposed to be salt, this preserving agent within within society. We're supposed to be light, bringing light to the darkness in society that that we are responsible for the land in which we live. We're at least partly responsible for good things happening. It's an if-then statement too. This Second Chronicles thing: if you will do this, then I will do this. It's it's a conditional statement, and it teaches us if God's people will do what they're supposed to do, then God's favor will be shown to everyone. Also in the Sermon on the Mount, later in that same chapter, verses 44 and 45, Jesus says this: "But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you." So that you'll be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. That when we're right with God and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, God blesses everyone. That we have an effect on all the land. And it's a, it's a powerful idea to understand that we are partially responsible for looking out for everyone. But the reason I named this iffy prayer, because there's more to it than just prayer. And that's what makes it a little bit iffy. I think that may be why it starts off with that big word, if. Because it's more than just prayer that we have to do to bring about the favor of God on our land. The first part about, so, so what is the if part? The if part's our responsibility. If you, if we will do certain things, then God promises to follow through on the then part. So what is the if part? Well, the first part is if you will humble themselves, right? If my people, so it's clearly to us, it's clearly a conditional statement who are called by my name, who, by the way, meet in a building where he says his name will re- uh, reside. what she's talking about there in the context. If they will humble themselves. Well, that makes it a big if right there, doesn't it? Humility. One of the things I think God values the most in all scriptures is the, is hum- humility. We're told in the New Testament to, to look at Jesus who humbled himself, to have the same attitude in Jesus who humbled himself. And though he existed, God considered that nothing. Here's a humbling thought for us. What if the reason the world is in such a mess is because we've lost our saltiness? What if the world is in a mess because those who are called by his name haven't been doing what we're supposed to be doing. We sit here and we look at them and we tend to sit in this place and say, if those darn sinners would just stop doing that, we'd all be better off. If they would stop their mess, we would be much happier. What if it's 
We're not doing our part so that they're blessed. Instead of worrying about them stopping their part so that we'll be blessed. We tend to blame them and not take responsibility for ourselves. And I'll, and I'll get to some ideas about, you imagine if Christians did the things that we want done, how much better the world would be. Romans 12 tells us this. For through grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than you ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment, as God has allowed each of you a measure of faith. It's a humbling thought to realize that except by the grace of God, there goes me. And then when we sit in this place, we got no one to praise but God. We've done nothing to earn his grace. We've done nothing to deserve his salvation. And it is by the grace and the mercy of God that we are here. We're not better than anyone. We're not uh, more righteous than anyone. We are in the same boat as everyone. And when we sit here and we think about that, we should be humbled. Except for the grace of God, there goes me. It's a humbling thought. But it's the first step to bringing God's favor on us all. It's the first step that we have to do and maybe the biggest one. The next part of that verse is if you humble themselves, then if they'll just simply pray. If they will take time to pray. Here's an interesting graphic. I think, yep, there we go. Barna tells us 79% of the people in the U.S. say they have prayed in the last three months. That's pretty good. Happy about that, aren't you? Seventy-nine, At least 79% of the people in the U.S. in the last three months have uttered at least one prayer. That sounds really good. It tells us that most of them, 82%, pray silently, uh, meaning they don't utter a word. Uh, they, so they're counting, you know, driving down the car, thinking a thought to God as a prayer. I think God hears those thoughts, but I'm afraid if only our prayer life is just those quiet self-thoughts every once in a while, I'm, we're missing a little bit. It tells us that 13% audibly play by themselves. They get together and they talk out loud in a place. Only 2% will pray audibly with someone else, and another 2% will pray collectively in a church. Let me encourage you to think about prayer as a real conversation because when I read the scriptures, every account of a prayer that I read in the scriptures, every time Jesus prayed, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and it says, Jesus said, and then he prayed, I don't picture him sitting there going, praying in his head. I picture him actually praying out loud. And so if you're among the 82% that never prays out loud, let me encourage you just to think about practicing that, even if you're alone, to speak. Because I used to talk out loud alone. I had a friend. His name was Tommy Brickens. He lived with me. I made him up. He was my imaginary friend. Now, how many of you had imaginary friends? Come on, I'm not the only one. All right. How many of you talked to your imaginary friend? All right. My parents tell me I talked... So much to Tommy Brickens, he was named after a brick house, by the way, that they would come sometimes leave the living room and come look in my room where I was playing to make sure I wasn't alone or make sure I was alone. Because they said, you're having such real conversations. They could hear me talking out loud. They really believed I was talking to somebody. 
Imagine if somebody, if you prayed out loud in places where people could hear you and they say, he's talking to somebody. He really believes he's talking to somebody. He's talking out loud to somebody. If you could, by praying out loud, convince people that God in heaven heard, wouldn't it be worth it? You might even just convince yourself that he's really there and listening to you. I'm not saying you have to. It's just an interesting thing to think about. Do we really have real conversations? Prayer with God. But that's not where it ends. So humble, pray, then seek God's face. I think what this means is to seek and desire to be in the presence of God. That if we, uh, I wonder how often when we think about God, we would prefer to run and hide from him like Adam and Eve in the garden than to seek to be in his presence. And, And so because I know one of the things I face, if I'm thinking I'm in the presence of God, that whole humility thing starts to pop up because I realize Who's in the presence of God? And it's a good way to be humble is to seek his face and say, God, I really want to be in your presence. And I really want your presence in my presence in every part of my life. Help me not hide any part of me from you. And and that we would, so we humble ourselves, we pray, we seek his presence. Lord, I want to pray for what you want. I want to be in your presence. I want to be known by you in every way. And then finally, God's people. If my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways. It's a call for believers to repent. That kind of hurts. It's interesting. My Thursday... This probably won't encourage you to come to Thursday morning Bible study, but they're my guinea pigs, really. And, uh, and they know it, and I appreciate them letting me practice stuff on them. A couple of weeks ago, I asked them, so start telling me some sins. And they mentioned some good ones. You know, drug addicts, adultery, murder. You know, they mentioned some, some Lulus. And then I asked them how many of them needed to repent of in any of them. And good news. We didn't have a single murderer among us. We didn't have any drug addicts. And we're pretty sure we didn't have any adulterers. We're happy about that. My point that I made with them, though, is when we start to talk about turning from our wicked ways and we start to define wicked ways, we always mention somebody else's. And we don't very often mention the ones that we actually struggle with. Now, they did mention pride. I'm going to give them credit because I think that's something we might struggle with. It's something we will be tempted with is pride. And as we got to going on, they started to bring up things like gossip and un- being complainers. And, you know, they started to bring up some of the stuff that we would actually struggle with. But when it's called, when we're called, we have to be real about what we are faced with, what we are challenged with and not mention the sins of other people that we're not going to ever be tempted with. And so we're called to first turn from our ways. So that's the if. If we will humble ourselves, if we'll pray, if we'll seek God's presence. And then if we'll be willing to say, hey, I need to turn first. I need to be the first one to turn from my wicked way. That's why we're praying 180, right? 180 degree turn. And the first part of that is revival. That's God's people. God's people coming closer to God. And that we will pray for that turn first. So that others will turn and repent also. So that's the whole idea behind this. So if we'll do that, 
Then what's the then part? What's God going to do? Well, the good news is first he's going to hear. Now, that's a strange thing to think that if we're not humble, if we're not willing to turn from our own sin, if we're not really to have God's presence shine on us, then maybe it's not worth praying. Because it, it takes all four of those for God to say, I'm ready to listen to you. You know, if you're coming in pride and unrepentant sin, I don't want to hear from you. If you don't really want to know what I want to know, if you don't want to really want me involved, if you don't want my presence with you, you just want me to bless what you're planning on doing and say you being in my presence, then I'm not really interested in that. You know, if you're not humble, if you're, if you've got pride, the Bible clearly says that what pride goes before the fall, God hates a proud person and it's not interested in that. I think it takes all four of those conditions to really make God ready to answer those kind of prayers. Because we'll be praying in his will then. Then he promised, so I'm going to hear you. Good news. Then I'm going to forgive you. So all those dastardly deeds that we did, taken care of. I'll forgive that. That's a promise. First John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Great promise. This is a win-win so far. God's going to hear us. God's going to forgive us. And then God's going to heal the land. Everybody reaps the benefits of us following through on what we're supposed to do. Now, what we think by heals the land may mean a whole lot of other things. When we talk about what does it mean when we want our land healed, where we want economic prosperity, we want world peace, we want a whole lot of things in our land that may not be what God wants. And so when we think about that thing, when we think about what it really means to heal the land, I think we should define and understand that when we pray for God's healing in the land, we probably will be part of the solution. And here's what I mean. If you look at the world and you say, man, the world is really angry. I wish the world wasn't so angry and people weren't mad at each other all the time. Well, think about this. What if all the Christians in the world stopped being mad? If we all stopped being angry, would our world be a less mad place? So if we're going to pray, Lord, I don't think you want people treating the way they're being treated. Then our first step is help me to treat people the way you would want them to be treated. Start with me. Start with my church and help us be your people in this world. And I guarantee you, if every Christian in the nation all of a sudden stopped being mad, we'd have a better nation. What if we prayed, Lord, the world's pessimistic, joyless, worried, anxiety-filled. Well, what if every Christian started being joyous and looking for the good in things and started being optimistic and saying, God's in control and it's going to be okay. The world would be a better place. What if we said, you know, the world is just full of unforgiving people and people are holding grudges for a long time. What if all of us stopped being unforgiving and stopped holding grudges and started giving each other the benefit of the doubt as we're told that, that this is what love is? What if we said there's too much griping and complaining in this world and everybody's just, you know, or too much selfishness or whatever we define as a thought of the world that needs to be healed and that would make the world a better place. We have to be part, willing to be part of the solution and not just diagnosing the problem. It falls on us first. Move within us first and then to everybody else. And the truth of the matter, I believe this passage is describing 
a revival. And here's another great truth that I think we need to realize. Revival precedes evangelism. I couldn't, uh, or salvation, or whatever you want to call the other thing. But, but if God's going to move in our country, if God's going to move in our world, if God's going to move in our community, in our, in our, our county, or, or wherever it is, it's going to start within the church and then go out. It's not going to start from outside the church and come in. That it starts with a revival and proceeds outward to the world. And so we have to pray for us. So for if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if they'll pray, if they'll seek my presence, and if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear, forgive, and heal. That's the progression of the story for us. And so it's really a passage about revival. And so I started to ask this question this week. You're praying for revival. Many of you are. Um, and I appreciate that. If we were to have revival, what would that look like? Well, how would we know? I mean, what metrics are we going to use to say, well, finally we're getting somewhere? Well, I'd like to define at least four for you to consider. That this kind of be our definition as we start this prayer for revival. The first thing I think we should be looking for is devotion to the word. All right. That we should be looking for us being devoted to the word. One of the things I, I'm looking for in, in our revival is to say, is to hear people stop saying, I know the Bible says, but. And saying this, I know the Bible says, and here's what I'm planning on doing about it. That would be devotion to the word. Also, as you know, we've already taken some steps. We're devoting ourselves to the public reading of the word each and every Sunday. And if you have a little calendar starting in the month of March, you will see there's five days a week, Monday through Friday, there is a scripture listed. I'm asking you to consider moving this devotion to the word outside the church on Sunday. But that we will all be reading the exact same scriptures together. It's only about five or six verses. I've laid it out. You'll have it on your bulletin. When you come in, you'll have it on the calendar. It's also on this side of the calendar. That we could all start reading the exact same scriptures. And each month we'll have a theme. By the way, the, the theme for the month of March is salvation. Uh, every scripture kind of shows the need or leads into the idea of salvation. And so I'm asking you to join with me, not to, as we join in prayer together, we're going to start reading the Bible together um, as a unit. And it's further devoting ourselves to the Word. The second thing, I believe, would be devotion to fellowship. All right. Matthew 10. Therefore, if anyone who confesses me before men, uh, this is a, a time out. Let me grab my paper. I don't have it. On your worship handout, on the one hand side, it says, I see, I heard, I will, I told. All right. Part of fellowship is being accountable to one another. Another one of my little guinea pigs on Thursday, I asked, you know, I've been asking people to pray for 180. And I ask, if you will do this, if you'll commit to it, would you let me know that you're doing it? To date, I have between 12 and 15 people. I lost exact count, but it's only 12 to 15 who have actually came to me and said, I will pray every day. For three minutes for revival and for salvation. And so I asked them, like, why do you think it's so hard to get people just to come tell me they're going to do that? And this is what they said. Well, if we tell you and then we don't do it, 
we'll feel bad. You know, and and we don't want to feel bad and we don't want to let you down and we don't want to feel bad about ourselves. I said, well, isn't that the definition definition of accountability? I mean, isn't that what accountability is all about? Telling somebody so that you're kind of held to do it, because when you tell somebody, it kind of makes it real. And so one of my thoughts behind the I told part. So when you come to church, you hear from God, you write down what you think you should do from God, and then you tell somebody else, because that is what fellowship Devoted to fellowship is really all about. It's not about breaking, you know, having a meal together. This is, and this is a thought I have from Matthew chapter 10. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before the Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before the Father who's in heaven. And I wonder, this is the thought, is if you come here, you hear from God, you got direction from God, but you're not willing to tell somebody what God told you to do today, are you denying him? Are you denying an encounter you had with him and not willing to follow through on that and make yourself accountable to someone? This is the idea behind fellowship, intentional discipleship with others, accountability, one another. And and we use this little thing. And if you don't have one, that you should have someone on this scale, someone below you that you're kind of helping bring up and someone above you that's kind of helping get you up. And this is the idea of fellowship in our in our growth with Christ and in our growth within the body and this growing together is that we have true fellowship. And if everyone in this place had someone they were helping and someone that was helping them, we would have some revival. No doubt. How about the next thing? Develop a devotion to the table. We've taken great strides in this one already. And so as you see. The why somebody asked this morning, somebody tell me why they're out here today. Because it's coming up next week, right? This is our week of sincere self-evaluation that between this Sunday and next Sunday, when we take communion, we're going to really look at our lives and see if we can find a sin. Now, it might be hard for some of you to find one, but find one sin that you'll repent of between now and next week. Now, some of you are going to have to double up. I'm planning on getting rid of 12 this year, but some of you may not have 12. And so take two months to work on one and get rid of six. That's a joke. But this is our time of being devoted to the table. And I'll be honest with you. Of all the things we've done so far, this has been the most impactful in my life. To know that it's sitting there this Sunday and it's coming back next Sunday. I will sincerely evaluate and look at my life this week. And I guarantee spiritual growth if we do that, which will be revival. And then the last one, devotion to prayers, that we will be devoted to the prayers. And that's why I just want to challenge us again. Grow in prayer. Try something new in prayer. If you've never prayed out loud, pray out loud by yourself. If you never prayed out loud with somebody, find one or somebody else and pray with one or two people, not in a big crowd, but, but try that. If you've never prayed in public, push yourself. Every Sunday, I have people come up and pray for little kids and the preaching of the word. If you would like to say, I'll put myself out there and, and try to say a public prayer. I, I'm willing to be embarrassed. I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to trust God that he will help me through this. It's not got to be like Randy said, right? It can be something simple. God Bless the children and bless us. Amen. That would be an effective prayer. And so just figure out some way to make yourself grow in prayer by doing something new possibly. And then just simply practice it more. Practice makes perfect. 
And I don't think there's any wasted time in prayer. And so especially as we pray for revival and for the salvation of the lost. And so when we leave here today, that's how I think we can define a good revival among us, what we can start looking for. We're taking great steps forward in that, and I'm grateful for that. And I pray that as we humble ourselves, we pray, we seek God's presence, and we turn from our wicked ways, know that God promised to hear, hear, forgive, and heal. And may his bounty be seen on all the land because of the goodness and the faithfulness of you, his people. Amen.